why don't we bow our heads and pray for God's Spirit to change our hearts through his word. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Father Almighty, we have to admit that by nature we're in the dark and we're simple. So we pray that your words would be faithfully unfolded in this sermon. And as that happens, would you give us light and understanding to help us follow Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. It seems for each generation there's an event so stunningly shocking that everyone knows where they were when they heard about it and what they were doing at the time. That was true of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It happened before I was born, but I can remember older people sharing stories about where they were and what they were doing when they first heard the news that President Kennedy had been shot. That assassination took place in 1963. Nearly 40 years later, another event happened with the same effect, the same power. Ask anyone who's, say, 35 or older where they were when they heard that hijacked planes had been flown into both towers of the World Trade Center, and they'll tell you. They'll tell you what they were doing at the time. I was working at home in Oxford, England. It was early in the afternoon. Britain is five hours ahead of US Eastern time. And I received a phone call from the guy I was working for at that time. He said, I think you should turn on your TV. My wife, Betsy, was coincidentally also in Oxford at the time. We didn't know each other then. When Betsy heard about the attack on the World Trade Center, She'd just arrived back at her student residence with some shopping. There was a TV on, and Betsy's friend Megan told her she should come and see what had happened. Both those stories are very undramatic, but there may be someone here today whose memories of 9-11 are much more intense and personal. My first boss in NYC, a pastor named John Mason, was living three short blocks away from the World Trade Center in September 2001. He was at home, working at his desk, when American Airlines Flight 11 flew into the North Tower, hitting it at 8.46 a.m. He said that when the plane hit the tower, he felt the whole of his apartment vibrate, but he didn't know why, so he carried on working at his desk. 17 minutes later, he heard the piercingly loud whine of a jet flown at maximum speed as the second plane flew straight over his apartment block and into the South Tower. I asked him if it sounded more like a crash or an explosion, and he said it sounded like a huge explosion. He thought a missile had been launched into the World Trade Center. Everyone in the apartment block was told to stay inside, so John and his wife Judith were still there when the South Tower collapsed less than an hour later at 9.59am. At that point, John said it suddenly became completely dark. 
The darkness was caused by the dust from the collapsed south tower covering his apartment building like a shroud. The power lines were down, so there was no electric lighting. John said he couldn't see his own hand in front of his face. He knew a vast skyscraper towering over his apartment block had been attacked in some way. And now this sudden thick darkness, he thought he might be about to die. Thankfully, both John and Judith escaped from their building unharmed. Think of all the consequences of 9-11. The 2,996 people killed on that day. The 20-year military intervention in Afghanistan, which was a direct response to 9-11. And the nine-year Iraq war, which began 18 months after 9-11 and also arguably happened because of those terrorist attacks. One September morning, four planes deviated from their courses and changed the world. There will probably be another 9-11 in our lifetimes. Another event so significant and shocking that everyone will remember where they were when they first heard about it. And some of us may well have personal 9-11s, entirely unexpected events that change our lives. A cancer diagnosis, a car crash, an unforeseen job loss. God wants us to be prepared for global 9-11s and personal 9-11s. As Christians, we can be prepared for them. God has given us the resources we need to be able to cope when a global or personal 9-11 strikes our lives. One of those resources is Psalm 46. It's good for Christians to have resilience, spiritual steadiness, even in the midst of unexpected suffering. And Psalm 46 can help us build up that resilience. We need this psalm. The psalm is divided into three sections, each of which end with that Hebrew word selah, which probably indicated a break in the singing to allow for an instrumental interlude. Each section of the psalm deals with a different threat. First natural disaster, then enemy attack, then global conflict. With each threat, those words in verse 1 hold true. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We'll take each section in turn, beginning with the first three verses, natural disaster, natural disaster. Please look down with me to verses two and three. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In verses two and three, nature isn't doing what it's supposed to do. The earth, which should stand firm, is giving way. Mountains, which are supposed to stay put, are tumbling into the heart of the sea. In verse 3, it's the sea that comes to the mountains. An incoming tsunami takes the sea beyond its natural boundaries so that even the mountains tremble at its swelling. Verse 3 could almost be a literal description of the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004 when waves 100 
feet high, invaded coastal areas in Sri Lanka, Sumatra, Thailand, India, and elsewhere. The sea surged to the foot of the mountains, and the mountains trembled at its swelling. The flash floods that hit NYC 10 days ago weren't anything like as devastating as that tsunami, but the same thing happened in miniature. Nature leaped over its natural boundaries, its usual boundaries, causing loss of life and serious damage. And we could even think about the COVID-19 pandemic in the terms of verses 2 and 3. The virus it is like a sea that has swept across boundaries into the human population. Someone might say that in the face of the Indian Ocean tsunami or the COVID-19 pandemic, verse 1 is just wishful thinking. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What kind of refuge or shelter can God provide when a tsunami is racing towards you? What strength can God provide to a hospitalized COVID patient told they're about to be put on a ventilator? Well, the refuge God offers is an eternal refuge. As we'll see when we look at the next section of the psalm, the city of God shall not be moved, and the city of God is where his people will live forever. In the meantime, God can strengthen us to keep trusting in him. So that as verse 2 says, we will not fear when we face whatever natural disaster is rushing toward us. That's not to say we shouldn't take wise precautions, but it is to say that in the depth of our being, we need not be afraid. That statement about God in verse 1 can be claimed as a promise. We can pray, Heavenly Father, your own word says you're our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Please, Father, be those things to me. And we don't need to wait until a tsunami is rushing toward us to claim that verse as a promise to us. It's a promise we can claim on a Tuesday afternoon when everything is unfolding just as we might expect it to. Even then, when nature is in its proper place, there will be different kinds of trouble. Earlier we sang, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. And that's not an exaggeration. The Bible teaches us we cannot trust ourselves. When we face temptation, that can happen very swiftly. God is a very present help. When we lack the strength to do something that really must be done, God is a very present help. When our heart is filled with a hard-to-explain sadness, God is a very present help. Isn't it good to know that he is with us and he can help? Isn't it good to know we're not alone? 
can I ask, are you someone who is well practiced in looking to God for his very present help? Imagine you could choose between going through Monday without your smartphone or going through Monday without God. Just for Monday, you're not allowed both your smartphone and God. Now, try to be honest with this thought experiment. Obviously, we're supposed to choose God. But being honest, would that be a difficult choice for you to make? Could it be the case that you're treating your smartphone as your very present help instead of God? Sometimes that's true for me, I'm ashamed to say. A smartphone seems to offer very present help, doesn't it? If you follow enough people on enough social media apps, the scrolling never needs to end. There's always new content, always a fresh diversion offering escape from our troubles. I like my phone, social media can be fun, but if we are looking to our phone for help with getting through the day more than we're looking to God, then we're stuck in the spiritual shallows instead of swimming in the spiritual depths. We need to practice looking to God for his very present help. Let's move on to the next section of the psalm, verses 4 through 7. The first section of the psalm dealt with natural disaster. This second section deals with enemy attack. When the psalm speaks of the city of God, in verse 4, it's talking about Jerusalem. That's where God's temple was located, which made the whole city his dwelling place. At first, there doesn't seem to be any threat on the horizon. Verse 4 paints a picture of a city at peace. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy habitation of the Most High. But in the next verse, there are signs that all is not well. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning comes. Jerusalem needs help. In verse 5, Jerusalem is patiently waiting in darkness waiting for the daybreak of God's rescue. If you read about the history of Jerusalem in the Bible, you'll find many times when the city had to wait in darkness for God's help to come. In the time of King Hezekiah, Jerusalem was surrounded by Assyrian forces. In later years, Babylon attacked God's city. Later still, when Nehemiah was governor, Jerusalem was threatened by an alliance of the surrounding nations. Verse 6 says the nations rage. And in biblical history, that rage was sometimes directed at Jerusalem. For the city's inhabitants, those raging nations could be just as threatening as natural disasters. And so the psalm calls for the same we will not fear outlook, the same steady confidence. God is in the midst of her. Verse 5 says of Jerusalem, she shall not be moved. Verse 6 highlights God's power to change a situation instantly. It says, he utters his voice, the earth melts. But as with natural disasters, it would be easy for someone to ridicule that confidence as wishful thinking, meaningless bravado. 
What help can God provide when the forces of Babylon have surrounded Jerusalem for so long that all the food in the city has been eaten? What help can God provide when those same Babylonian forces then invade the city and burn it to the ground, including God's temple? Those are good questions to ask. An Israelite, at the time of the Babylonian invasion, may well have questioned that claim in verse 5. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. How can that possibly be true when Jerusalem has been literally burned to the ground? How can verse 5 be true? If we bring that question to verse 5 with faith, with faith in the truth of God's word, it drives us to the realisation that this psalm is looking forward to a future Jerusalem. It's looking forward to the new Jerusalem spoken of in the book of Revelation. Daybreak for Jerusalem won't truly come until the time of the new heavens and the new earth the time when God makes everything new. One interesting clue that this psalm is looking forward to an eternal version of Jerusalem is the presence of that river in verse 4. Verse 4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. That's a puzzling statement. Take a look at Paris on Google Earth. There's a river making people glad, the same. Look at London on Google Earth. You'll see the Thames curving through the city, making the people glad. It's the same here in NYC. The Hudson River makes Upper West Siders glad. The East River makes Upper East Siders glad. Here's the thing. If you look at Jerusalem on Google Earth, you will not see a river. You can zoom in as much as you like. You still won't find a river. doesn't have one. What that means is that any ancient Israelite reading verse 4 would have said to themselves, I know the city of God is Jerusalem, but this Jerusalem with a, with a river? It doesn't sound like the Jerusalem I know. To those with the eyes of faith, verse 4 points forward to a future, eternal Jerusalem. And verse 4 isn't alone. In the Old Testament, Zechariah and Ezekiel both speak of a future Jerusalem with a river. In the New Testament, the Apostle John sees a vision of the New Jerusalem and he says this at the start of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city. So in verses 4 and 5, it's as if the psalm toggles between new and old Jerusalems. For God's people in Old Testament Jerusalem facing enemy attack, the vision of a new Jerusalem that shall not be moved must have been immensely encouraging and reassuring. It must have helped them endure the night as they waited for morning. And that vision of the new Jerusalem should reassure us too and encourage us too. Our circumstances in this life are not secure. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. Planes take a flight path toward death and destruction. Our circumstances in this life are not secure, but God will help us keep trusting him 
until daybreak comes and we enter the new Jerusalem forever. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is almost here. The future focus of Psalm 46 reveals the purpose of God's very present help. We need his help in the here and now so that we'll keep trusting in him until we enter the new Jerusalem. We need everything God offers in the here and now to keep trusting in him. We need his love, his friendship, his power to say no to sin, his power to say yes to sacrificial acts of service. To get to the new Jerusalem, we need God's help in the here and now. Sometimes God's very present help will be a practical change for the better in our current circumstances. Psalm 84 says, God withholds no good thing from those whose walk is blameless. If something is truly good for us in this life, God won't withhold that from us. And that includes practical and material things. Sometimes his very present help includes a life saving intervention allowing us to keep on serving Jesus in this current world. One extraordinary story of that kind of very present help came out of 9-11 itself. A man named Stanley Pramnath was on the 81st floor of the South Tower and he saw the second plane as it approached his building. He knew what had happened to the North Tower just 17 minutes beforehand. He tells the story like this. I see something grey, a plane, small at first, then larger and larger. I'm mesmerised. It's happening in the flashes of a minuscule second. I can hear the revving sound of the engine and the plane is coming closer closer, closer. All I remember saying at the time was, Lord, I can't do this. You take over. I screamed and I dove under a desk. The bottom wing took out most of the floor I was on. It looked like a demolition crew came and ripped the entire office apart. Every piece of furniture was mangled. The only desk that stood firm was the desk I was hiding under. And he then made it out of the building. Lord, I can't do this. You take over. God provided Stanley with the very present help he needed. Before we move on to the final section of the psalm, we must notice the collective nature of everything being said. You can't have a city without lots of people. When verse 4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, it's talking about the city dwellers made happy by that river. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge. Verse 2 says, We will not fear. Verse 7 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. Our, we, us, not I, not my, I, me. It's good to know there are others alongside us when the earth gives way 
and the nation's rage. Other believers trusting in God's very present help. That's part of the message of Psalm 46. In our final song this morning, we'll sing about the blessing of belonging. It's one of the best blessings of the Christian life. Psalm 46 expects us to be experiencing that blessing of belonging so that we can look to God for help as a body of believers. One of the strangest mistakes Christians can make in life is to assume you can go it alone, dipping in and out of church without ever really committing yourself to one Christian community. Please don't make that mistake. Our, we, us, not my, I, and me. Christian community can occasionally be uncomfortable in the short term, but over the long haul, it's very sweet. When you hear our, we, us, do you immediately think of a community you belong to? Or a community you're in the process of joining? I hope you do. God wants individual believers to seek his very present help alongside others in the local church. One of our main aims here at Good Shepherd is to provide people with that kind of community so that we can collectively find refuge in God. Well, let's press on now to the third and final section of the psalm, global conflict. Global conflict. Please look down to verses 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Once again, that's a picture forcing the believer to look ahead with faith. What verses 8 and 9 describe will only be fully and finally accomplished in the future on God's day of judgment. But that ultimate fulfillment can be previewed in advance through present day realities. Listen again to the, to, uh, the first line of verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord. It sounds like there are particular events in view. That line, come, behold the works of the Lord, it's like an arm gesturing towards something that could be seen at the time when the psalm is written. The end of the Assyrian Empire is one example from biblical history that fits well with verse 8. In the 7th century BC, the Assyrians ruled over a massive area of the Middle East. They were very aggressive and violent. They constantly threatened the Israelites. But after the Babylonians and Medes destroyed Nineveh, Assyria's capital city, in the year 612 BC, the Assyrian Empire never recovered. In the eyes of the Bible, how was God's doing? God's work. God took part in that global conflict, bringing desolations upon Assyria so that it wouldn't threaten his people anymore. The big point here is that God gives peace to his people by bringing desolations to those in rebellion against him. And that's a pattern found throughout the Bible. All the way to the final judgment, God brings peace to his people by bringing desolations to those in rebellion against him. If you're listening this morning as someone who's not yet reconciled to God, 
through Jesus. Thank you for listening. It's my job to say that in God's eyes, you're in rebellion against him. It may not feel like that to you, but that's the spiritual reality. We were created to worship God and live life his way. Choosing any other way to live is rebellion against the maker of all things. Verse 10 is an invitation to you. In verse 10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Since God will be exalted, be still. Stop fighting. Surrender to him. He invites you to lay down your arms and come to him. On the day of judgment, God will, in the words of verse 9, break your bow and shatter your spear. But if you surrender to him in this life, which you could do even today, you won't face his anger in the future. God invites rebels like me and like you to surrender to him because he has made a way for us to be forgiven. In our first Bible reading today, we heard the Son of God, Jesus Christ, say these words, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. To be lifted up is to be exalted. The Apostle Peter uses uses exactly the same lifted up word in Acts chapter 5, when he says of the risen Jesus, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour. So when Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, he's saying he'll be exalted in the sight of all people. It's so similar to verse 10 of Psalm 46. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. But listen to the very next sentence. In John chapter 12, John adds this comment. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That death lifted up on a Roman cross looked like defeat among the nations. But in truth, the Son of God was exalted among the nations on the cross. Ever since that day, Jesus has drawn people to him from every nation because on the cross, Jesus suffered punishment in our place so that rebels like us could be forgiven. All you need to do to receive God's forgiveness is to surrender. All you need to do as you see Jesus exalted on the cross is to be still before him and receive what he offers. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is very present. He's easily accessible. He's a fortress we can run to at any time. He will help us reach the city where the river of life makes his people glad forever. Let's bow our heads to pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement given to us through your word, through this psalm, this song. Father, we pray that you would fix our eyes on that future city. Would we rejoice at the prospect of living there with you and your people forever? And we pray, Father, that you would help us to practice looking to you for your very present help day by day so that we will keep on trusting in you and your salvation and arrive in that city when morning comes. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.